Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash QKT. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. Hello, this is Jeffrey Koo. I'm a gastrointestinal medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. My research focuses on novel therapies for esophageal gastric cancer. Welcome to this activity about the role of HER2 expression in treatment decisions in metastatic gastric or gastroesophageal junction cancer. Let me start with my patient, whom we will call Adam. So Adam was a 70-year-old man who was in his usual state of excellent health until he began to develop worsening dysphagia for solid foods. Around this time, he also had increased reflux symptoms, and in this context, he lost approximately 10 kilograms over a six-week period. His initial workup consisted of an endoscopy, which revealed a tumor at the GE junction, and biopsy revealed an invasive adenocarcinoma moderately differentiated. His baseline imaging consisted of a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. This revealed thickening at the GE junction. There was also peresophageal lymphadenopathy, as well as several lesions up to three to four centimeters in size that were consistent with metastatic disease. Moving a little bit, little bit further back, Adam really had been healthy his entire life. He had no significant past medical history. Only surgical history consisted of bilateral inguinal hernia repair. Medications were pantoprazole and vitamin D, and he had no known drug allergies. In terms of social history, it was notable that he continued to work full-time as a mason. He had a past smoking history and drank alcohol very rarely. His only family history consisted of his brother, who was diagnosed with colon cancer in his 60s, but was without evidence of recurrent disease well into his 70s. So the first question is, at this point in time, who should be tested for HER2 and when should the testing take place? We have guidelines from ESMO, from the Japanese authorities, as well as here in the US from ASCO and NCCN, and we have good concordance. Essentially, all of the guidelines recommend that all patients with metastatic GE junction or gastric cancer should be tested, and they should be tested immediately at the point of diagnosis as there are clear treatment implications. The NCCN guidelines additionally consider repeat biomarker testing at the time of clinical and or radiographic progression on therapy, and this is something that we will discuss in the next case. How do we define HER2 overexpression? Well, in Adam's case, he was found to be HER2 positive with an immunohistochemistry score of 3+. Additionally, we checked for MMR, the tumor cells were MMR proficient, and he had a pdl one combined positive score of 10. We did subsequently also perform next-generation sequencing, which confirmed HER2 amplification, and there were a couple of other non-actionable alterations. Now, how do we score HER2 positivity? The ASCO and College of American Pathology guidelines recommend sequential testing initially with IHC alone. The benefit of IHC is that it is relatively cost-effective and the turnaround time is only several days. FISH should be performed only if the IHC results are indeterminate. Specifically, as in Adam's case, if the IHC is 3+, this is considered positive and no additional testing is needed. Alternatively, if the IHC is 0 to 1+, this is firmly negative and no additional testing is needed. FISH should be performed only if the IHC is 2+, plus, which is indeterminate. In this context, if FISH is positive, that is a HER2-positive tumor. 
If FISH is negative, it remains a HER2-negative tumor. One additional consideration in esophageal gastric cancer is that unlike breast cancer, HER2 expression tends to be more patchy or heterogeneous. As such, a strong recommendation is to try to obtain as many core biopsies as possible so that we have a representative sample of each lesion for HER2 testing. Another consideration is that there can be discrepancy between central versus local testing. And this was an important conclusion of the variant study, which was a study performed by German investigators. And in this study, they found that actually a little bit more than 20% of the time, there was discordance in results between central and local testing. Now, this discordance actually has important implications because when they subsequently analyzed overall survival um, in response to treatments, not surprisingly, tumors that were assessed to be HER2 positive, both centrally as well as locally, did the best. But of note, tumors that were assessed to be HER2 positive locally, but were negative by central testing, actually did not seem to derive benefit from the addition of trastuzumab, and these patients did about the same as patients with HER2 negative disease who did not receive trastuzumab. Certainly, this impression is consistent with my anecdotal experience at Memorial Sloan Kettering. It's not uncommon for us to get tumor samples that are assessed to be HER2 positive locally, but when repeat testing is done by our pathologist, we actually assess that the tumors are HER2 negative. Ultimately, we all understand that it is critically important to identify tumors that are HER2 positive so that trastuzumab-based therapies can be offered. At the same time, we should not be offering these treatments to tumors that are truly HER2 negative. So at this point, we have enough information to make a treatment recommendation for my patient, Adam. Again, he has a tumor that is IHC3+, and in addition, on next-generation sequencing, is found to have HER2 amplification. This is not something I've previously discussed, but it's also pretty clear that the more ways a tumor is found to be HER2 positive, the more likely it is to be truly HER2 positive and therefore to benefit from anti-HER2 therapy. So what are the treatment options in the first-line setting for a HER2-positive tumor? Here we have a little bit of discrepancy between the guidelines uh, based on the US FDA and ASCO, as well as ESMO and the Japanese guidelines. Specifically in the US, the recommendation is to offer patients pembrolizumab with trastuzumab and chemotherapy, whereas in the rest of the world, certainly in Europe and Japan, the recommendation remains trastuzumab with chemotherapy. So why is there that, this difference or distinction? The use of trastuzumab in the first-line setting is, of course, based on the TOGA study. And this was a practice-changing study that was published in 2010. And this was a study that enrolled patients with HER2-positive disease and randomized them to receive chemotherapy alone with or without trastuzumab. Of course, we all know that this was a positive study, and adding trastuzumab to chemotherapy improved all outcomes, most notably median overall survival. In the intention-to-treat population, median overall survival was 13.8 months for the trastuzumab plus chemotherapy combination versus 11.1 months for patients who received chemotherapy alone. I would note that this was in the intention-to-treat population, but in a planned subgroup analysis of what we would now consider HER2-positive disease, again, IHC3+, or IHC2+, fish positive, the improvement in median overall survival was even more striking. More recently, the Keynote 811 study demonstrated benefit for the addition of pembrolizumab to trastuzumab in chemotherapy. Uh, in an interim analysis that has since been published, there was a clear improvement in response rates to 74.4% from 51.9% for patients who received trastuzumab and chemotherapy alone. 
At this time, survival data remain pending. On the basis of these data, the US FDA approved the combination of pembrolizumab, trastuzumab, and chemotherapy in the US. But outside of the US, no other regulatory authority has approved this combination. And as such, the survival data are eagerly awaited. So what did we do for Adam? Well, he received pembrolizumab with trastuzumab and Fulfox chemotherapy. And very gratifyingly, after two cycles over one month, his dysphagia essentially completely resolved and he was able to eat normally again. After four cycles over two months, he had a repeat CT scan, which revealed a clear partial response. There was decrease in esophageal thickening, improvement in the periesophageal lymphadenopathy, and the liver metastases that also significantly decreased in size. He then continued to receive oxaliplatin for a total of eight treatments. By that point, he was beginning to develop some mild grade one neuropathy, and because it was important for him to maintain manual dexterity for his work, oxaliplatin was stopped. He then continued with the maintenance strategy of pembrolizumab with trastuzumab and chemotherapy. So, to summarize this case, molecular testing should be performed for all patients with metastatic gastric and GE junction cancer at the time of diagnosis, and this should absolutely include HER2 testing. In esophageal gastric cancer, HER2 expression is considered positive if the IHC is 3 plus, or if IHC is 2 plus and FISH is positive. HER2 testing should really be performed in reference labs that have experience in testing patients with gastric cancer, as again, the pattern of expression is different than in breast cancer. And currently in the US, the standard of care for first-line therapy for HER2-positive disease is pembrolizumab with trastuzumab and chemotherapy. In the rest of the world, it remains trastuzumab and chemotherapy. Thank you very much for watching. Please join us at the next session where I will discuss the therapeutic options for Adam at the time of disease progression. Hello, this is Jeffrey Koo. I'm a gastrointestinal medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. My research focuses on novel therapies for esophageal gastric cancer. Welcome to this activity about treatment options for patients with metastatic gastric or GE junction cancer with HER2-positive tumors whose disease has progressed after first-line trastuzumab-based therapy. I will therefore continue with the story of my patient, Adam. So as you will recall, Adam was diagnosed with HER2-positive GE junction cancer. He initially received treatment with pembrolizumab, trastuzumab, and Fulfox. He had significant improvement in dysphagia after one month. A CT scan at two months revealed a partial response. Oxaliplatin was then stopped after eight treatments over four months to prevent the development or worsening of neuropathy. He therefore continued with pembrolizumab, trastuzumab, and 5-FU leucovorin for an additional eight months. He then underwent a CT scan after eight months of treatment. This did reveal that one of the liver metastases had increased in size. There was also increased thickening of the distal esophagus, and it was consistent with the fact that he was beginning to develop recurrent dysphagia again, much like the symptom that he had at the time of his cancer diagnosis. The first question in terms of management is, do we need to repeat a biopsy to determine HER2 status? And my emphatic answer is yes. There are now multiple data sets from East Asia as well as from Europe and from Memorial Sloan Kettering that show that up to one-third of the time, HER2 positivity is lost, and this is presumably a mechanism of resistance to trastuzumab-based therapy. A related question to obtaining a tumor biopsy is whether we can substitute this for liquid biopsies or circulating tumor CT DNA measurements. 
There are clear benefits to this approach, but also currently limitations. The most major benefit, of course, is that this is a non-invasive approach and merely involves a blood draw. The difficulty is that not all tumors will shed ctDNA, and it's likely that the amount of ctDNA is also a reflection of disease burden. So there are some tumors and patients with small volume disease where ctDNA may not be detectable. In addition, unless you have a baseline ctDNA measurement, a one-time measurement post-progression on trastuzumab may be difficult to interpret. Another attractive feature of ctDNA testing is that you can perform multiple serial testings at various time points. However, most current technologies currently have a turnaround time of several weeks and high costs, limiting their use in real time. Finally, a theoretical benefit of ctDNA is that it allows us to guide individualized patient treatment by monitoring molecular changes in semi-real time, we may be able to identify acquired mechanisms of resistance and apply newer treatments. Of course, perspective data to support such an approach remain lacking at this time, and a very real and practical challenge is that unfortunately, we only have a limited number of targeted therapies that are not applicable to most alterations that we would identify. In this case, Adam did undergo repeat testing for HER2 expression, as I have strongly encouraged. Because he had worsening dysphagia and because there was increased thickening at the GE junction on his CT scan, he was able to relatively easily undergo a repeat endoscopy with biopsy of the primary tumor. And it did indeed confirm that the tumor cells remained HER2 positive. The IHC remained 3 plus. The next question then is, what treatment should Adam receive? Well, in this case, I treated him with trastuzumab deruxtecan monotherapy. The Destiny Gastric 01 study was a pivotal study conducted in East Asian patients in the third-line setting. These were patients with HER2-positive disease who had initially received first-line trastuzumab-based therapy. In the third-line setting, they were then randomized in a two-to-one fashion to receive trastuzumab deruxtecan versus a dealer's choice of chemotherapy, which was irinotecan or a taxane. The primary endpoint of the study was objective response rate, which was clearly met but an important overall secondary endpoint was overall survival. And here there was a clear improvement in overall survival for trastuzumab deruxtecan or TDXD versus chemotherapy. Median overall survival was 12.5 months versus 8.4 months for patients who received chemotherapy. Hazard ratio was 0.59, so clearly a clinically as well as statistically significant improvement. In terms of safety profile, TDXD is an antibody drug conjugate, so it therefore has chemotherapy-like toxicities, including fatigue, nausea and vomiting, and myelosuppression. In my opinion, nausea and vomiting is underappreciated with this regimen, and we typically treat patients with a strong antiemetic regimen consisting of palinocitron as well as a prepotent. More recently, we presented results for the Destiny Gastric 02 study, this was a single-arm study in Western pa patients in the U.S. and Western Europe who received TDXD as second-line therapy. An important feature of this study is that patients underwent a pretreatment biopsy to ensure that their disease remained HER2 positive. We reported and confirmed objective response rate of 41.8%, as well as a median overall survival of 12.1 months. And these results actually are strikingly similar to the results of Dastiny Gastric 01, again in an East Asian population in the third line setting. 
a toxicity that we observed and which was also observed in Destiny Gastric 01 and indeed in any other study of TDXD in solid tumors was interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis. And this occurred in approximately 10% of patients. Again, this percentage is very stable across different studies and different tumor types. And unfortunately, two of the events, so 2.5% of patients, actually had a grade five fatal event. So it's absolutely important as this drug becomes more widely used that all of us are attentive to and look out for this particular toxicity uh, because it can absolutely be life-threatening. Based on Destiny Gastric 01 and Gastric 02, TDXD is approved for HER2-positive gastric cancer around the world. The first approval actually happened in Japan in September of 2020, and it was approved consistent with Destiny Gastric 01 as third-line or greater therapy in patients who had received a first-line trastuzumab-containing regimen. Shortly after that, it was approved here in the U.S. in January 2021, and actually it was approved as second-line or greater therapy in any patient who had received a prior trastuzumab-based regimen. And most recently, in December of 2022, this was also approved by the EMA, the European Regulatory Authority, for the exact same indication as in the US. So therefore, a potential treatment schema for patients in the US would involve trastuzumab deruxtecan in the second line setting if their disease remains HER2 positive. On the other hand, if the disease is HER2 negative, remesirumab plus pacotaxel remains the current standard of care. For tumors that are MSI, Pembrolizumab is approved in the second-line setting. It's approved for any MSI tumor, uh, agnostic of, of, his, of tumor site. However, MSI and HER2 positivity are virtually mutually exclusive. So when can trastuzumab deruxtecan be given? Well, here in the US as well as in Europe, TDXD can be given in the second-line setting for tumors that remain HER2 positive. On the other hand, for tumors that have now converted to HER2 negative, Remesirumab plus placataxol remains a standard of care based on the RAINBOW study. For tumors that are MSI, pembrolizumab is FDA approved, agnostic of the tumor site. However, I would state that MSI and HER2 positivity are almost virtually mutually exclusive. On the other hand, in Japan, TDXD is approved only as third-line therapy following progression on remesirumab plus pacotaxel, for example, as a second-line regimen. So one important consideration is, in the US and Europe, if we're able to give TDXD either a second or third-line therapy, are there patient characteristics that would make us choose or not choose to give TDXD? As I've already discussed, interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis is an important and potentially life-threatening toxicity of the drug. So clearly, if someone has poor lung function, if, for example, they have COPD, we might want to reserve TDXD for the third-line setting because of the 10% risk of developing interstitial lung disease. Now, an unanswered but emerging question is, what about patients with developed pneumonitis after receiving pembrolizumab in the first-line setting? Severe pneumonitis happens about 3 to 4% of the time, so it's uncommon, but can these patients be safely treated with TDXD in the second and third-line setting? At this time, I'm not aware of good data to suggest either safety or infeasibility. But again, this is a patient population that we might want to reserve TDXD for the third line setting. So to summarize this case, in patients who progress on first line trastuzumab based therapy, repeat HER2 testing should be performed 
as HER2 positivity may be lost. The response data, as well as more importantly, overall survival data from both Destiny Gastric 01 and Destiny Gastric 02 have led to the approval of TDXD for patients with metastatic HER2 positive disease in either the second or third line setting. The most common treatment-related adverse events of TDXD include nausea, vomiting, fatigue, and myelosuppression. Interstitial lung disease, while uncommon, needs to be closely monitored for and in patients with poor lung function or potentially with prior pneumonitis from immunotherapy, we may not wish to consider TDXD as the next immediate treatment. Thank you very much for watching. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.